diving into data. Diving, diving, data. Diving into data with TC Riley. Oh, it's Wednesday, which means another episode of Diving Into Data with TC Riley. Hey, TC. Tyler, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great, man. How are you? Doing well. I like our new uh, little studio setup here. It's kind of fun. Right? Right? Yeah. It's pretty sweet. Pretty it is, sweet. It is. Feeling very professional over here. You know, I got the desk. I got the soundboard. Got the big computer. You know, got TC in here now. Now everything's better. So. Now everything's better. That's now everything right. is better. We're going to talk a little football today, as always. Going to explain how big the decisions are, you know, that coaches make in-game about going forward on fourth down, when to punt, things along those lines. The trickle-down effect of that, let's say. We're also going to look at some travel analytics, and we have a new term of the week that we got to dive into. But, uh, TC, just uh, how's your week going so far, man? It's great. It's great. It's yeah? a little uh, chilly down here in Dallas, which uh, for this southern boy isn't the most enjoyable. But... Uh, <laughs> Other than that, I can't complain. Life's good. One of these days you're going to have to explain how you as a Southerner ended up as a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. Uh, there's a, a pretty simple tie there, just family back in Pittsburgh originally. I was okay. born and raised in the South, but uh, we can dive into that further. And uh, uh, maybe uh, later if the uh, Steelers keep doing well, maybe we'll have to have an episode kind of focused on them as uh, Tyler rolls his eyes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I was born and raised here, so I'm a Cowboys fan, and there's just nothing I can do about that. Yeah. But uh, not this year. <laughs> Not this year. There's also nothing I can do about Texas A&M not being in the college football playoff, or Texas for that matter. Yeah, no, neither of us uh, doing well there. Yeah, we, uh, we, we both struggled. So last week, we kind of took a look at the projections, right? Who was being projected to be in the college football playoff? Well, now we know who it is. We have the four teams. They played the conference championship games. And so now we have an updated list TC that kind of gets into uh, okay these are the four teams who's likely to make the title game who's likely to win the national title and that sort of thing so we're going to take a look at those four teams today yes we are and uh, uh, a little plug for ourselves um, even though I you know I, a couple things last week that we had said um, I think still hold true some of which the data backed up some of which just the eye test um, the top four probabilities um, they're the ones who made it again yep. the top three are pretty easy we talked about that Oh, you made it in um, Utah, you know, stumble on Friday and that was enough to knock them on out. And um, with Georgia losing to LSU made that uh, it, it, the committee got it easy this year. Yeah. Um, kind of got a free pass. They got the well, these are the obvious four, four conference champions from the four of the power five, the Pac-12 once again, just hanging out in the West Coast there. Um, this oh, sounds like Pete. They got some uh, PG&E issues to deal with anyway over there <laughs> in the West Coast from uh, what I just started Business Casual. So. Yeah, thank you for thank you for that plug. Uh, there you go. Thank uh, you for that plug. Well, not only does the Pac-12 have it tough because nobody stays up and watches their games anyways. Yep. But uh, just none of their teams have been that outstanding recently, so yeah. it makes it harder to justify trying to like squeeze them in in a year where like. You know, you could have put a lot of different teams there in that four spot. Realistically, looking back last even like 10, 15 years, you know, you had the USC run. Once that ended, um, you've had, you know, Stanford's had a couple good years. Oregon had the couple, especially when Mariota was there. Mm -hmm. Um, But, I mean, just about every other conference, I could list off about 10 teams, I think. Like, oh, yeah, in the last 10 years, they were pretty good that one year, a couple years can't really do that in the Pac-12 so yeah um, it's, it's and that West rough. Coast bias I, I do think it is a thing I, I know when I you know um, baby's down for the night wife goes to bed Saturday night in the fall um, I head to my uh, man cave pop open a, <laughs> a couple adult beverages and I'm always happy because even though I'm watching football all day now at 11 o'clock at night we're in the second quarter of the right Arizona State Utah game or you know or whoever it is it's unwind um, time Exactly. So uh, as a football fan, I enjoy it, but man, I feel bad for 
Um, the, those Pac-12 teams were about 90% of the co- country is either asleep, out for the night, not interested at that point. So, yeah. Um, but let's get back to the teams that actually matter moving forward here. No offense to the Pac-12. Um, so now that we've kind of seen how they played out, um, and I will say I, I, I maintained last week that according to my eye test that Baylor was a better team than OU. OU just had the explosive offense, but I still like Baylor more. Um, I'm still riding that bandwagon, just so you know. I still think Baylor is a better team. I think that they proved this weekend that they can match OU. They took OU um, to overtime with, with a third-string third string quarterback. quarterback. Yes, exactly. Their second-string quarterback went in there, and I guess they tried to run like the wishbone or something. Cause I don't know if that guy um, has really thrown a football. Definitely an impressive athlete and runner, but I, I, I'm not sure why he was ever the backup for being honest and transparent. It's hard here. to imagine Joe Burrow at LSU not just absolutely carving OU to pieces. Two pieces. Yes, when a third-string freshman is uh, is looking pretty good. And, and yeah. Charlie Burr is a good quarterback, but he's not he's not Joe Burrow or right. you know, Justin Fields or Trevor Lawrence. So Exactly. Um, I think OU is in some trouble um, coming up here. Um, and uh, we're going to pop back to the 538 stats, the one that kind of led our conversation last week to yeah. look at the next ones. Um so when we're looking at it, the best chance to win the entire playoff, actually not the number one seed, not LSU. It's still Ohio State. Um, and that is to win the entire championship. Um, LSU and Clemson are close. OSU is at 34%. LSU and Clemson at 29 27% respectively. And our friends north of the Red River had only 10%. Um, and so that's looking at, again, that's, that's two rounds you know, from now. We're looking. So just to advance... Um, it's pretty clear which of the two games is probably going to be more interesting. We have a 55-45 split for OSU and Clemson, mm-hmm. um, with OSU getting the slight edge there. Um, LSU 67, OU 33, so 2-1 to one that LSU is going to beat OU. Frankly, that still might be a little generous. I, I, I agree with that. 10 times that OU maybe gets one or two. I agree um, with that big time. But hey, you never know what will happen. Um, but again, these are all kind of standard numbers, pretty much what you'd expect. Um, the things that kind of stuck out to me, um, outside of 538, CBS had a couple articles I thought really interesting, mm-hmm. um, looking specifically at LSU popping over OSU for the one seed, and how much does that matter? Um, again, the kind of fans' eyeball test is, well, yeah, they went from playing OU, who I think we all agree is definitely the, the weakest of the bunch here, to playing a Clemson team that hasn't lost in two and a half years, um, that has a guy at quarterback who can still turn it on and probably is going to be a number one pick um, when he comes out a year and a couple months from now. Right. Um, I don't think anyone would pick, uh, you know, playing Clemson over OU. So uh, that definitely hurt him. But the percentages, actually, um, from previous to this weekend to after this weekend. Um, so looking at their percentage chance of actually winning the whole thing. Um, and keep in mind, we actually lost two teams from that. Utah and Baylor were both considered in that last week. They both had a very good chance. Yeah. Um, so we dropped two teams. Um, the weird thing is a lot of the percentages for these teams didn't change that much with one exception. But Clemson actually went up 1.1%. Hmm. Interesting. I think that probably the biggest factor there was the fact that they made Virginia look like a um, high school football yeah. team. Um, They've been doing they, that to everybody. Yeah. Good, good for Virginia for getting there, but I think we called that one. Yeah. Um, Oklahoma, um, I'm sorry, OU um, has a 0.4% better chance. So even after going from Utah, Baylor, and them all fighting for one spot to them actually having the spot, mm-hmm. their chance of actually winning only went up 0.4%. Um, I don't think that's a lot of confidence in the fact that OU is going to have much of a chance in the yeah. first game, and even if they pulled a miracle, that they'd be able to pull two. Um, 
Oklahoma, I'm sorry, Ohio State, too many O's used and OSU's <laughs> and stuff. Um, Ohio State went down 3.2%. Um, that's a big shift because, again, they have to play Clemson now. They're in that one seed. People yeah. might have been thinking they might have an easier first game. But LSU increased 15.7%. Wow. So we're talking, again, teams moving a couple of percentage points. LSU made a massive jump in their likelihood, according to these models um, from these simulations. And, again, a, a lot of that is rooted in the fact that um, if they advance, how likely they are to win, and how likely are they to advance? You kind of had to look at those separately. Mm-hmm. And LSU is just so much more likely to advance than any of the other f- three teams, um, obviously over OU, but then the other two that have to kind of go through each other to get there. Right. Um, actually, I did a couple of calculations based on these models, and some that was interesting. So if they advance, what are the chances that a team wins the title? Um, the weird thing here LSU is not first. LSU, if they advance past the first round, only a 43% chance of winning the title. That's really interesting. Clemson and Ohio State, both over 60%. So what this is kind of saying, this is back to that 538 model. What it's saying is that, yeah, LSU is going to get through. They have the best overall chance because it's almost like they have a buy a little bit. They're mm-hmm. kind of treating it that way. Um, but the winner of the OSU-Clemson game, they think is actually going to have a better chance in the title game. I'm not sure I agree with that, just looking at the teams, but also based on the fact that they're going to have a lot tougher game, probably, you know, maybe uh, That's a good point. take a more, couple more licks, but uh, um, get a little stronger, identify some weaknesses there. Um, OU has a 30% chance if they advance, so that's pretty much saying not a great chance to win the first one, and even if they do, eh, still not looking too hot. That's really interesting. Now, so part of me always wonders when it comes to these types of things, like what what all is factored in, right? So Ohio State, I was seeing this, Ohio State has a bigger margin of victory over ranked teams than LSU this year. They've beaten more ranked teams than LSU, but of course that's all human ranking, right? And right. at the end of the season, I think Penn State and Alabama finished with the same record, but you can't tell me that Penn State's a better team than <laughs> no. Alabama. I mean, you could you could try to make that argument. I'm not going to buy it. Like, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, when LSU beat Alabama with a healthy Tua and that sort of thing, Alabama is a better team than Penn State. So it doesn't matter to me necessarily that LSU played a close game against Alabama and Ohio State blew out Penn State. So if that's part of the rankings, I don't know. I, I don't necessarily know that I buy the formula that would say that Ohio State's a better team than, than LSU. I, I would completely agree with everything you just said. I think you probably just shown a perfect light as to why we are with we are why we are where we are hmm. um, when it comes to the committee and having a committee, having yeah. a group of people who can take the data, they take the FPIs and the rankings and the AP polls and all these polls and everything. Um, They take all that into consideration. Mm -hmm. There is that human element. They take the data and they kind of have to decide um, okay, we have this, we have this, we have this, you know, sometimes again, it's a consensus. In this case, at, at the very end point, it was, well, all three of those sources probably said, hey, uh, Clemson, Ohio State, and LSU are all in. Uh, pretty easy. Yeah. Um, but they have to kind of consider what else is out there. And I think it's because there maybe isn't a perfect formula. Mm-hmm. Like you said, uh, those rankings all have human kind of impact in them, you know, injected yeah. in there. It, it can make trouble, you know, make it difficult to really identify what the root is of a team, how good they truly are. Um, again, OSU blowing out Rutgers by 70 on some random weekend. Um, I don't think LSU, you know, I, I think the bottom of the Big Ten is worse than the bottom of the SEC. How do you factor that in? Well, you, well, you don't really. It's yeah, just, yeah. Uh, it's ranked opponents. It's this kind of goes back to, to what we talked about uh, one time, that you, you can't just look at data. You have to use data and common sense, right? Yes, and, exactly. Uh, and it's not just a go with your gut. It's take all the evidence that you have at your disposal and make the right 
decision, right? And that's kind of make the best decision that you can with the data and the information that you have available. And I think that's why there is a committee because just like in business, you take all that data, you take all the information, but then you also inject a little, um, you know, human idea. Yeah. a, A little gut, a little, you know, idea, a little perspective, a little vision and that sort of thing. And then make decisions like that moving forward. Yep. Absolutely. So. It's going to be interesting. We're going to see what happens. We're definitely going to revisit this um, when we come back from the uh, holidays and see how the uh, first round went. Maybe have a title game, uh, uh, you know, a showdown um, kind of episode where we uh, really dive into the two teams that make it. Yeah. Um, just for the record, I think we both are obviously on LSU. Who you got, Ohio State, Clemson? Oh, that's so hard because it's going to be such a good game. You know what? I'm going to go Clemson. I'm going Clemson too. Really? So, so yeah. I-, I think Clemson has the defense that can – kind of neutralize Ohio State's biggest weapon, which is J.K. Dobbins, right? Like running back, everything Ohio State does kind of revolves around that running game. But if Clemson can neutralize that just with a front four or, you know, one or two linebackers, then you can also kind of shut down Justin Fields because you're not blitzing, you're not bringing extra people into the box. You're going to neutralize Ohio State's biggest weapons and uh, kind of shut down that high-powered offense. And then I think Trevor Lawrence can make the throws necessary for Clemson. I completely agree, and I think what it might come down to is the fact that we're going to have two pretty young quarterbacks in this game too, you know, sophomores pretty much. Um, one guy's done game. it before, though. Yes, and that's yeah. exactly it. One guy has done this and did this last year, did really well. Um, the other guy is kind of new. Um, and by the way, I agree with J.K. Dobbins being the biggest weapon, but not if you ask the Heisman Committee, who apparently thinks Justin Fields deserves to be in New York, but not Dobbins. But anyway, we're not going to We're not going to go down that path. They're all much. playing for second fiddle anyways. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and so don't worry, we're not quite done with football. We're going to do a little more sports heavy today. Yes. Um, one more quick little story, and we're actually going to shift to the NFL. Something I've been noticing, and it's going to tie in with our term of the week. Yeah. Term of the week this week is real-time analytics. So a lot of what we talk about in analytics is either prescriptive slash predictive. It's, you know, applying historical knowledge to what's going to happen in the future, or it's reactionary. So it is after everything is said and done, let's do a postmortem. Let's figure out where it goes. There are more and more, both in business and definitely in sports, hint, hint of what we're about to talk about, the use of real-time analytics, literally the data becoming immediately available and Mm -hmm. immediately applied. Um, There isn't a delay. There is an analysis. There's a model in place to capture, report, and, you know, give you the outcome immediately from there. So real-time analytics are really cool. We use tons of them here at work. Um, You probably have any production environment probably uses a good amount of these. Yeah. Um, But it's shifting more and more to the executive suite and some of the marketing sales channels, things like that, Um, being able to make immediate decisions and immediate kind of reactions according to the data rather than trying to just predict or react. So it'll be interesting to see how that continues to take over business. But the reason I want to talk for this is fourth downs in the NFL. Man, there's a lot of teams that seem to be going for it. That's been my takeaway over the last few uh, weeks, specifically, definitely this season overall. Yeah. Um, and the thing we keep hearing is, well, the analytics that predicted, you know, your win percentage or your projected win percentage is, you know, influenced so much by this one decision. Um, also, kind of fresh in mind with all the talks around here of uh, the Clapper and uh, his inability <laughs> to apparently use these stats. That's Jason um, Garrett and his uh, unwillingness to even look at analytics. So, yep. uh, uh, for a flashback, if you didn't listen last week, you should have. You missed a a, a good one. That's your for, uh, Princeton uh, grad, right yeah, there. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's not good down there <laughs> path. Um, but uh, <laughs> what it is, uh, we've seen it up across the NFL going forward on fourth down. We're going to kind of boil it, you know, more simply down to that. Um, and it's because of analytics. Um, there's a couple teams that are good examples of this. The Ravens have actually done a really good job. I'm a Steelers fan, hate the Ratbirds, um, but I, uh, I got to give them props where props is due. Um, 
but and I think the reason this is interesting is that NFL coaches and the NFL community mm-hmm. of uh, owners, decision makers, GMs, everyone um, are very conservative by nature. They're risk adverse. Um, they seem to value potential loss over potential gain. Um, we've seen that for a long, long time. Um, whether it's again in business decisions they're making, kind of holding down the fort, predict, uh, preventing any revenue losses and things like that rather than shooting for those new demographics it's kind of just staying with the status quo right um and that trickles the whole way down to coaching decisions typically where you would rather punt it and say hey well you know the defense we thought we can make a stop and they lost it rather than gamble go for it on that fourth down yes you might win the game but oh you could lose the game pretty much here too mm-hmm. um and so it's great to see that analytics and the numbers that are kind of saying hey guys you need to go for it more are being used um more frequently and I read one quick little article. It was actually in the Tampa Bay Times um, about how uh, how this is changing. Um, the one kind of uh, they looked at three specific teams and kind of touched on them and the way they're doing it. Um, the Colts, Bucks, and Carolina. We'll circle back to that in a second. Yeah. The other little note they had though um, was how many how third down play calls are changing significantly based on the fact that they have a good idea of whether they're going forward on fourth down or not. That's really interesting. Um, A lot of third and sixes, third and fives, third and mids are turning into run plays to get it down to fourth and three, fourth and two, fourth and one, rather than maybe previously you had to get that first down because even if it was fourth and inches, you were punting it. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's even, there's trickle down and trickle up effects from this to kind of consider, maybe we'll revisit that in a future episode. but the three they hit on were the Colts, Bucks, and Carolina Panthers, as I mentioned. The Colts, Frank Reich is someone, their coach, is someone who kind of claims to be an analytic, analytics disciple, an analytics guru. Um, and they're talking about in this article how he does a really good job of considering these analytics. Um, but even some of the ones that say they really care about and they really do, he has made some really bad decisions. He's had a couple decisions on fourth down calls one way or the other that have changed the winning percentage by you know, 10, 15 points. Hmm. Um, this guy's an analytics disciple. Um, so it, it, that's kind of it exemplifies that, yes, we're making moves there, um, but even the ones who are good at it maybe still aren't great at it. I think as right. we look at the next two, three years, teams are going to get better and better. They're going to have that, you know, that analyst in the earpiece type of thing literally saying, okay, um, you should go this on third down because this is what's going to be on fourth down. Yeah. Um, we're getting there. We're not fully there. Um, but unfortunately for the Buccaneers, um, Bruce Arians, who's actually a former uh, Steelers offensive coordinator, love him, think he's a really good guy and good coach. But yeah. Man, he is bad at this. Really? He has, um, so again, every decision on those fourth downs kind of increases or decreases your percentage of winning. Mm-hmm. When you sum them all up, everyone, the, the coaches in the league, a lot of the times are actually kind of negative. They're like averaging minus 30, minus 40% over the year. Yeah. Bruce Arians is at minus 102%. Goodness gracious. What that kind of equates to, and again, it's not a perfect translation, is that he has almost cost them a win. Um, worth of probable odds based on the decisions he's purely made on fourth down decisions late in games. Unbelievable. It's almost impressive, to be totally honest, how bad that is. But um, one of the things that I thought it was funny because they had a little quote from, there's these analytic circles that um, there's these accessory organizations and groups and teams that help out a lot of teams in the NFL. And they did a little poll and literally every single team was accounted for. Some group was working with them. They'd done this and this. Of the 30 groups, not a single one had ever talked to someone within the Buccaneers organization. Kind of interesting. So I'm not sure what they're doing down there in Tampa, but they might want, uh, based on how their seasons have yeah. been going, um, might want to look at that. Also, might want to find a quarterback who doesn't throw 15 interceptions a game. <laughs> um, it's good for my fancy team. Jameis has been killing it this year, but... Man, some of those decisions are bad. Some of the decisions are very, very bad. 
And uh, but yeah, the last the last note in this NFL uh, little piece here before we head to our little commercial break here and then get to those travel stats um, is the change in Carolina. So Ron Rivera fired last week. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's a great coach. He's going to be back. So it, it just it's been a bad year. They've had lots of issues. I'm not sure if Cam's there, not there um, in the future. But um, something that's kind of unique there is they didn't really make a big national story out of this. But North Turner, offensive coordinator for Carolina, yes, also out the door with Ron Rivera. You know who took over for him? No. Scott Turner, his son. So Interesting. Very interesting. First off, there's a weird family, you know, kind of uh, son. Yeah, uh, dad out the door, son takes over. I I don't know if it's, you know, kicking dad out the door or, you know, taking his place, uh, whatever you want to kind of spin that. But um, he's going to have a trial run at offensive coordinator, and he is someone who in this past – um, both in kind of just you know, anecdotally and what he talks about, but also in kind of what we've seen during the games when he has some more control. Mm-hmm. Um, very, very analytics-driven, nor of his dad, very old school, not right. nearly as much. Um, again, a good coach, nothing wrong with Norv, but uh, he is not necessarily the uh, leading edge in, you know, of uh, predictive analytics. Sure, him. sure. Um, so I'm going to be curious, just over the next few weeks when he gets this little trial run, mm-hmm. he said that he's going to start using more data and more analytics, make the shift and see what happens. Um, obviously, again, three, four games left in the season. And not going to do a whole heck of a lot, but I'm curious to see what the changes are there. Does it impact it? Um, does the Panthers organization realize, even if maybe they don't stick with Scott in the future, that hey, this an- there's something to this analytics thing? Yeah. Um, and I think that again, that's a little interesting piece that a lot of teams are going through where they're dipping their toe in the water. Um, I think more having success and failure. So over the next couple of years, I think it's going to continue to really grow and take off. Interesting. And one of the things that I think that probably talk a little bit more about in the future as we as we talk about analytics and real-time analytics and things like that is small sample size. I saw a bunch of people cherry-picking an example from the Sunday night football game this week of uh, one of the teams went for it on fourth and one inside their own uh, end of the field. Yeah, and a lot of people, uh, you know, uh, I suppose kind of derided that decision. They were like, oh, where's your analytics community now? Because they didn't make it. Like, right. see how smart that was and that sort of thing. It's like, well... You're picking Again, one example. Numbers are predictions of what will happen of the possible outcomes. Yes. There's always a chance. Again, I, I can flip a coin and you and I would say, well, there's 50-50 chance it's heads, tails. Well, it's actually probably 49.999 for each of those because there theoretically is a world where I could flip it and it could bounce just right and land on its edge. Exactly. It, you never know what's going to happen. Um, and it doesn't mean if I flip a coin 100 times, it's going to be exactly 50-50. They're predictions based on math and numbers. It is not a... Um, crystal ball that we're looking into here. That'd be cool, though. That would be cool. Well, we got to step aside, take a quick break. When we get back, we're going to talk about holiday travel analytics, so don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Hey, everyone. This is Kevin Stevenson. Listen to my show, I Don't Care, on Friday mornings at 9.30 a.m. Central Time. We'll be diving into a wide variety of interesting healthcare topics that you may not find anywhere else. Find us on marketscale.com and be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. All right, we're back here on Diving Into Data with TC Riley. So now that we're uh, 80% of the way through the show, I guess we probably should stop talking about sports, huh, Tyler? If we have to. Yeah, twist our arms. If but. we got to... But uh, so this week I was reading something and this is going to kind of try to uh, tie in with those of you in the travel transportation industry. So a little bit of hospitality, a little bit uh, transportation. Um, this is a big article that Trexoff came out. It was kind of uh, travel predictions. It was kind of based around the holidays, but not even necessarily. 
um, only holidays. Um, but looking into the end of 2019, into 2020, some of the trends um, did a bunch of different polling, kind of some interesting things that came out of this from the data. Um, and uh, the first one, actually the biggest point that they did was around sustainability about the huh. environment. Yeah, I know. Again, I know that's kind of a thing. I, you know, I've heard of this, you know, the air shaming. We've, you know, people have talked about that a little bit, but um, that kind of led the, uh, that was waving the flag for the study of the things that they came off, um, came out with. And 55% of people um, would say that they're more determined this year than last to make a eco-friendly, sustainable choice in travel. Um, so again, more than half of people um, are cognizant of this and kind of influencing this. That's interesting. 73%, so almost three out of four, say that at least once this year, they're going to ensure a trip is eco-friendly. Um, again, we're not going to dive into what qualifies as eco-friendly or not. Hmm. Um, taking the Prius on the road trip still probably isn't the best idea um, but uh, <laughs> for the fa a family of six or something. But uh, um, And the last little one was 70% um, were more likely to book an eco-friendly trip than a non-eco-friendly trip, even if there's a, a price difference there. Um, so what stood out to me there is I, I, I think that a, in the bigger picture with travel um, and the both hospitality and transportation industries, um, I think companies might have, uh, they're aware of obviously, again, uh, climate change, everything going on. This isn't like some breaking story we have here. Um, obviously, it's a huge thing. They're even, you know, they're meeting over in uh, Spain, I think, right now um, about climate change and things like that. But um, the fact that like, you know, between 50 and 75% of people are saying that their plans and their specific, you know, actions are going to be influenced by this. Right. Um, I think in the past, it's been a little bit more of a stigma and everyone says, yeah, well, you know, this is definitely important. Um, and then the time comes to click the button and you're like, oh, well, that's 50 bucks. That's, yeah. Uh, I don't know if I want to do that. Um, I'm thinking we're going to start to see actual revenue, um, kind of streams being, um, significantly impacted by this. Mm -hmm. um, so just curious, do you think uh, when you book travel, sustainability, um, I, I'm sure it's not ignored, but is it really front of mind for you? Or It has not been front of mind to me. And it's honestly like affordability is, is most front of mind yep. to me, mixed in with a little bit of convenience uh, and, and that sort of thing. So I'm interested to see how much this study, this poll kind of, translates into real life like yep. do people actually do that when they're booking their travel or is it just really nice to talk about it? is it really nice to say it and so i'll be curious to see if that's the case and i think it'll be shown in whether or not airlines start making this a point of emphasis in their advertising and their yep. marketing i think if you do start to see ads which you know kind of display some sustainability you know angle and that sort of thing i think then you'll be able to say okay they seem to have some kind of data some kind of reason to believe that this actually affects the decision making of people beyond just paying lip service to it exactly i could not agree more on both those points i think that a um I, i'm curious to see uh, they're saying they you know they really think it's going to affect it i'll kind of believe it when i see it yeah Again, not being don't want to be a skeptic here but you want to um, be a realist about what actually drives and motivates it, people. let's just look at a high level the the paris climate accord again uh, let's not get into the u.s involvement there but a lot of company countries are saying yes it's so important we got to do it and i think like three percent have actually taken the actual steps to yeah. do that so it, again it, it's still a lot of lip service um and the other pieces, yes, I, I still, every time I see an American Airlines commercial, it's about how many cities they go to and how many flights they have. I've, I don't really see a lot of, you know, oh, well, we're, you know, 20% less of an environmental impact based on this. So, yeah, um, I, I, we'll see what happens there. 
Um, a couple of the other little, just little stats as we you know bounce around. Um, sustainability is a big takeaway for me, but um, destinations um, and families and the Instagram influence. So what I mean huh. by that is destinations are increasing. Um, a lot of airlines are increasing the number of different airports, the different places they're going, both international and domestically. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, more families are kind of changing lifestyles and traveling more. Um, and this uh, little analysis I read theorized that it's the Instagram influence. So you see these pictures of, again, uh, I'll use my example as Banff, Canada, which I know is somewhere my wife desperately wants me to take her. That's some friends that have already traveled there. Yes, based yeah. on the pictures you see. And I've seen the you know, crystal blue water. It looks yeah. great. Um, 20 years ago, that probably wasn't a hub of tourism nearly as much. Maybe Banff, because sure. I don't know much about Banff, I'll be honest. But there's a lot of these places that you see this really beautiful picture on Instagram or Facebook or social media somewhere. Um, and say, oh, I want to go there. Well, previously, no one was really traveling there. This guy just happened to stumble across it. Mm -hmm. you know, this picture went viral or whatever. Um, and now there's a you know supply demand. They're going to, hey, that local airport's probably going to get a little more business now because people want to come take this picture themselves sure, and share sure. it with their friends. And well, um, it's it's that it's that impact of the uh, the experience economy, right? Where people want to go and they want to have experiences, not necessarily have stuff. It's kind of a millennial idea uh, of hey, traveling is cool because you get to go experience places, and more and more people are wanting to find that spot that's a little bit more off the beaten path, quote unquote. You know, so not just go to Paris, but you know, go somewhere else in France. Yes, you, exactly. If, that, if yep. that makes sense, yep. just to Absolutely. be a little different, just to have that experience that's maybe unique, that's different than what other people. Do. And I know you didn't because you're across the room, but it's almost like you just read my last major bullet point here, which is yeah, my eyes aren't that good. Yeah, the experience influence. Yeah. Um, which now, um, in a uh, three-month window leading up to a trip, there are going to be three times as many searches around experiences and mm. things to do in an area as there are about hotels, and eight times as many as about booking air travel. So people are not necessarily going about hey, where can I find the cheapest tickets? Where can I take the family and stuff like that? They're looking for specific experiences. They're looking, um, again, the shift that we have seen kind of in a, a overall in the marketplace, whether it be specific to business or even just as consumers, yeah. um, this increased experience, they're looking for that. And then the rest of these details are kind of the, okay, well, now that I've decided on these experiences I want to have, now I'm just going to fill in the gaps with, you know, flights and hotels and rental cars mm. and this and that and the other thing. Um, whereas in the past, it seems like it was still a little bit more, yeah, w obviously you're considering what you're going to do and stuff, but it's more of, well, hey, we can get cheap tickets, you know, cheap tickets to uh, Reno or I don't know, somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Okay, now what's there to do in Reno? Let's go look it up and stuff like that. We'll figure out something to do there. Um, definitely a flip there that people value experiences. So as a company, you need to consider that what you can provide in terms of marketing, in terms of content, in terms of insights into the experiences of your products, of your services, um, of what you offer compared to just the nuts, bolts, bottom line, that kind of stuff. Well, and if you if you're in a, if you're a hotel, let's say you know, uh, this this kind of speaks to what you're saying. You have to think through because people are now viewing hotels and the and the travel that it takes to get to a place as a means to an end, right? Exactly. It always was, but before it was much more a part of the equation. Which now it's simply just how can I get from point A to point B? Where am I going to lay my head at night? So how can you insert yourself into that experience in a way that provides? a level of service, a level of quality that people actually remember that, you know, kind of plays into their overall experience of that place. Like what can you provide that aids in that experience that maybe differentiates yourself just a little bit? Can you, you know, provide a local flair, you know, inside a hotel lobby that 
may otherwise just be pretty generic mm-hmm. you know can you bring the the surrounding culture into the hotel that then makes it feel not like you're staying at you know generic hotel but that you're staying at a place that really captures and adequately understands the the area around it and adds to that experience yeah could not agree more I'll, this is here's your random example from nowhere texas of the week <laughs> um down in glen rose for those of you familiar kind of southwest of fort worth over there i've been there um have a big uh, dinosaur parking mm-hmm. they call it it's dinosaur valley fossil, state yes, park exactly um so a lot of fossils and stuff like that there are um, there's one particular hotel down there that has built a little museum almost on mm-hmm. their ground floor of things that have been found or replicas of it and information about it. Um, so now what they have done, again, th- there's 20 hotels, you, you know, around there, probably all right about the same price. Not exactly a hotbed of, you know, travel, probably not New York City prices. But uh, uh, what that they have done is they probably will always have a full hotel because that family that is driving to Glen Rose mm-hmm. to have that experience. That's what that's why they're going to Glen Rose. Right. Uh, I, I don't really know why else. Why you else go you would to go to Glen Rose? Yeah. Um, but uh, no offense to Glen Rose. Um, but what you have done now is when they search and they realize that hey, I'm going to pay about the same. Maybe I have to pay ten, fifteen dollars more for this one. But yeah. my kids are going to love this because before we even go to the park and after we come back from the park, they're going to be able to kind of tie in with their experience. It's going to tie in with it. And again, that's a really random example. It's top of mind because one of my friends is heading down there next week. Sure. Um, but exactly, I think you're going to see a lot more businesses especially in the hospitality kind of industry leaning towards that and the okay what we are isn't good enough it's how we are Mm -hmm. which kind of sounds cheesy but but adding that element into it um, is going to become more and more and more important and that's going to be your bigger differentiator Um, whereas things like price will always matter Mm -hmm. but price matters a little bit less if you have that extra bang to it 100 percent 100%. 100%. TC, we're out of time for today. We got to wrap it on up. Yes, we got to wrap uh, it on up. But this has been episode. a fun episode of uh, Diving Into Data, and I can't wait to, to do it again next week. Everyone's fun, Tyler. Come on. You're right. Yeah. They're, all, <laughs> they're all equally fun. I love them like children. I can't pick a favorite, but this one was particularly good. I, I understand that one, too. <laughs> Thanks, Tyler. Thanks, TC.